We're okay with not everybody being okay. Uh, We're okay with a little bit of mess. In fact, the messier, the better, because that means you see more of God's grace at work in life. We say around here that we're an authentic church. Uh, we, we, this is who we are. We're an authentic church for those who've given up on the church, but haven't given up on God. And that authenticity is a high value for us. And it's so awesome to be able to be okay with not being okay. And to know that through grace and truth and God's word and time that he's going to work on us. He's going to take us from the wilderness to wholeness in his own beautiful time and way. And a lot of it centers back to where we're at today and what we're about today. Talk about the mess of life being redeemed and made whole and right because of the resurrection. And so if you have your Bibles, we find the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, one of the passages, many passages that deal with the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to look at them. Now, you've got to understand that when we come to the resurrection of Christ, there's skeptics. There are those who believe in it. There are those who wonder about it. Is it really, did it really happen? Listen, Romans were expert at killing people, okay? It was the Roman Empire because they conquered lands, okay? They knew what dead looks like. They knew how to crucify people. They introduced the concept. So they knew what dead was. Jesus didn't swoon. He was thoroughly, completely dead. Okay. They put him in a borrowed tomb and he rose again from the grave. Now that's when a lot of other people get off the bus. I'll deal with Jesus as a good teacher. I'll take Jesus as a, as a miracle man, but this whole raising yourself from the dead, I can't go there. Well, you can't go there maybe because your faith won't let you go there because you can't look at the overwhelming preponderance of evidence of the proves the resurrected Christ and how 12 different times over the course of 40 days, he makes appearances to believers and unbelievers, to men and to women, to small groups and to large groups, up to 500 people at one time and individuals as they walked along the road. So there is constant Jesus Christ manifesting himself, showing that he is alive, fully and completely alive. And again, you think about just 500 people in one setting. You might think all those disciples, they just, uh, they had some kind of psychotic kind of situation where they wanted to believe that he was resurrected, but they were just hallucinating and thinking about, listen, there's no way that we can convince 500 people to agree upon the one story unless it was a true story. And so it's incredible how we can rest assured today that Jesus Christ was resurrected. And I think when you look at the power of the resurrection in people's lives, that is a clear evidence of there's the resurrection. When I think about the resurrection in my own life and how the, the resurrection gives me promise, the promise of a new position, of a new position in Christ, that I have a new life in him, that I am now a part of him and he's a part of me. It's the promise of a position. And you read Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, say it with me, you will be saved. That's my new position. If I believe in the resurrection, if I adhere to the resurrection, if I let the resurrection fully impact me, it changes my life. That started for me on March, chap, March, excuse me, March 6, 1976. That's when it happened for me. It started a journey in my life. Pivotal moment when my status in life changed, my position in life changed, my identity changed. It became attached to Jesus, this resurrected Savior. But that's not it. When we talk about the resurrection, we talk about the power of the resurrection, I want us to see today another element, another promise 
in that. And let, so let's look at Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 24, and let's look at verse 45 and kind of get it in context. Beginning in verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He's going to point them to the Scriptures. What's the Scriptures at that time? It's the Old Testament. He's going to point back to the Old Testament as he's sitting there talking with them in a dialogue with them. And he's showing himself to them. And by the way, this is one of the times that he ate with his disciples. I say he ate fish and chips with his disciples on this night. And so he opened the Scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So the very topic that he's going to bring up is this whole resurrection concept and why he's alive and what happens in his, in his life. But he doesn't stop there. We're going to read on in just a moment. But I want to talk about the second promise that comes through the resurrection. It's not only a positional change, but it's also a personal change. There's a person that happens inside of me. There's a, there's a new life that happens inside of me. I get a new life, but I get a new life because I have the presence of God in me. All right? You, you maybe remember growing up, you are what you eat. Okay? Or finish this statement. Garbage in, garbage out. What is inside of you determines what will come outside of you. All right. If there's trash on the outside, that probably means there's trash on the inside. And so what I have the privilege and you have the privilege of living in is that when the Holy Spirit is a part of you, when Jesus is resurrected, he's going to send to us a person. And that person is going to take up residence inside of us. And when he takes up residence inside of us, he's going to want to lead us. Now, in that same passage, let's skip down a few verses just for the sake of time, and go to verse 49. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father. Okay? Wow, great. What's this promise, God? So he's resurrected from the grave. He's going to send us a promise. He's opened up the Scriptures. What's he reading? He, what's he reading to them? I don't know what he's reading, but in context, he might have been reading from the great prophet Joel. Joel wrote this many years before this, hundreds of years before this. It shall come to pass afterward, maybe afterward what? After some time, after his resurrection, I don't know, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everyone will have the opportunity to be embraced. In fact, it even goes on to say that servants that kings and princes, that there will not be a respecter or person, that everybody can literally be aware and walk in the awareness of the Spirit of God. So not only does the resurrection change my position in this world, that I'm saved and I have a relationship with God, I'm reconciled, I, I can now connect with God, but also it changes the person a part of me. That God is going to do something. He's going to send out His Spirit upon me. And in John chapter 14, Jesus also made a promise. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He will be with you forever. Now, Jesus was just with him for 33 years. But he said, this promise is going to be with you forever. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. 
He will always be with you. All mankind will have the opportunity. Now, why am I talking about this spirit? Because I want us to understand that had the death of Christ not happened, had the resurrection not happened, the promise could never have been completed. That there's a domino effect here. That one led to the next, that led to the next. And what the domino that falls here is going to be that once Jesus is resurrected from the grave, he's going to walk this earth for 40 more days. He's going to show up 12 different times to hundreds and hundreds of people of all different walks of life, as we've talked about. But when he leaves 40 days later, 50 days from the resurrection, there's going to be a presence, a person that will be poured out on the earth for all people who follow him. And that's where I want us to see and understand that the resurrection is more than a date and time and event that we are celebrating some historical event that happened way back then. We are living in present tense, not past tense, present tense, the effects of the resurrection. And a part of the effect of the resurrection is not only has my status changed in life that I'm now a child of God, but the person in who I am and who lives inside of me and who is a part of me has changed. And that's where we're going to be going. The title of the series is Get Lit. Now, I do know in our culture there's, there's another meaning for, for get lit. And we're going to operate on that, that, that a little bit, okay? We're going to play on that a little bit. So you can say when you go out to your workplace and schools tomorrow, that what did you do yesterday? I went to church and got lit. And so that's what you can talk about. All right. So what does it mean to get lit in this perspective of what we're talking about? To be saturated, to be inundated, to be flooded with, to be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. The promise that in Joel was promised to all mankind. That Jesus said, I'm going away, but when I go away, I'm going to ask the Father to send somebody who will not go away, but will always be with you. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we can live in the promise of the saturation, of the inundation, of the intoxication, of the Spirit of God in our lives if we choose to. Or we can, as the Scripture talks about, quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit. We can shut down the Spirit in our life. We can shut down, listen to this, we can shut down the power of the resurrection in our life. If we are not very, very careful, we might just so choose to keep the Easter story a historical event on the calendar of our life, or we can walk daily in the power and the presence of the resurrection. It's up to us. What does that mean to get lit? What does that mean for the, the Spirit of God to saturate me? What if, what if in, in the reality of the Spirit of God saturating myself and saturating my home and saturating my church and saturating my community and saturating our state, what if it's saturated? What if He saturated our nation? What would that look like? What would that feel like? What would we experience? Well, I think we're going to see in the course of this series starting today, we're going to just sample it today, just a tasting, if you will, of the fruits of the Spirit, what happens whenever the manifestation of God begins to manifest Himself in us. And we're going to unpack that over the next month and a half. But as we talk about it today, what are we talking about? We're talking about love as one of those manifestations. What if there was more love in our nation and less hate? 
here we are 20 years yesterday from the Columbine shootings. What if there was more love in our land and less hate? Would there be less shootings in our schools? What if there was peace and patience that would operate in our homes and become the modus operandums of our lives? Would there be fewer slamming doors and cold nights in our homes? What if self-discipline marked us and self-control marked us? Would there be, would there be less of this world's intoxicating elements controlling us? Because these are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what happens when the resurrection happens, when the Spirit is sent, when the Spirit begins to abide in us and we begin to abide in Christ. I want you to say these with me. I want your your ears to hear your mouth say it. Let's read this verse together. But the fruit of the Spirit is... And against such things, there is no law. Basically, you will not go wrong with this. Now, let me ask a question again. What would it mean if we all got lit today? And we all began to manifest the power of the resurrection in our life on a day-to-day basis. See, the Holy Spirit happens in us, but others experience Him through us. Do other people experience the Holy Spirit through you? Do they experience the power of the resurrection through you? Where do I, again, I get on this intoxication kind of theme? I want you to, uh, again, you're in Luke. I want you to go over to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 18. We'll read one verse, and I want you to just see where he's talking about. Because in this verse, he's going to literally, it seems like he's going to hard shift. He's going to be talking about one thing, but then he's going to go talk about another thing. But really what he's trying to do, he's running, he's doing parallelism here. Where he's running these two thoughts side by side, and he's trying to communicate in contrast and in comparison the way that we're supposed to be inundated, saturated, marinated, any other aided word that you can think of, intoxicated by the Spirit of God. What does that look like, feel like, act like? That's what it looks like, feels like, smells like, act like. So peel those fruits and start eating them. But here's where this begins to happen. One, it says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, and do not get drunk with wine. Now, that's a full sentence. He could have stopped right there. And we've all said, yes, that's right. That's not a good thing to be drunk. I don't know anybody who goes out and says that that's a good thing to be drunk. Because why? For that is debauchery. Not exactly a word that we use on our everyday occurring of, in our vocabulary. But it only appears three times in the entire New Testament. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But on contrast, in comparison to, don't be drunk with wine, but in comparison to and in contrast to, be filled, be drunk with the Spirit. And that's not spirits that you get down at uh, Macadoodles or something like that. That is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that we're talking about here. So let's talk about what happens when the effects of being intoxicated with the Holy Spirit, 
what effects does it have on your life? What, what happens to you? Okay, let's, let's jot them down real quickly. The one is intoxication will alter your speech. I think we all could probably, hopefully not personally, but maybe sometime in your life, you've been around people that have been intoxicated and loose lips sink ships. You've heard that before. You, people say things they regret saying. You've heard that before. I didn't mean that. Did I really say that? They start divulging secrets. It becomes a truth serum for some. It's really quickly you begin, to, you begin to know just by the changing of even tone. I've heard of angry drunks and happy drunks. They become really happy or they become really angry with their words. Intoxication is, affects our speech. So it does when the Holy Spirit takes over. But let's first of all understand Matthew 15 verse 18 says, But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. Our speech is affected when the Holy Spirit takes over because what he does is he begins to detox what has been intoxed with filth. Chuck Swindoll said it like this, if your heart is a cesspool, your mouth is a sewer line. James chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 says, consider the great force that is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. This past week, an 856-year-old global history site caught fire. Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral. I've been there and many of you have been there. It's one of the most popular, uh, popular tourist destinations in the world. Um, an incredible cathedral built house to worship God. Now I can't say it's always been that ever since then, but it's at least been that. It has survived, obviously, centuries and decades of decay and pollution that have affected it and caused the whole renovation that was going on in process. Hitler even had it on the agenda of the Nazi party to destroy. Think about that. It survived Hitler. It survived survived decay. It survived pollution. But what fire inspectors are still investigating today, and maybe you've heard it already, is that it was a short in a wire that caused the cathedral to burn, a spark. Hitler couldn't destroy it, but a spark could. Now remember what James said. Consider the forest that is set afire by the small spark. The tongue is a fire. We have to be aware of our speech. How does he call us to speak? What happens when the Spirit takes over? We speak differently. We speak differently because we, now verse 19 says, uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So there's literally a change of speech when you're intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Uh, some um, college buddies of mine, we, uh, we were, still this day, we're we stay in contact with each other and we, we lived together one summer and we worked together one summer and we did life in every sense of the word. And man, we were nothing but a bunch of smart mouth with one another. We used to rag on each other. We used to beat each other down with our words. And all of a sudden, one of these days at the end of the summer, we actually got under conviction, all of us, nearly overnight at the same time. And we realized that our words, though they were funny and jeering and they were actually destroying one another. 
are hurting one another. So we all committed to memorizing a verse of Scripture that to this day it's still on the, my mind, Ephesians 4, a few verses prior to what we're reading now. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification to the building up of the body. Let nothing come out of your mouth. See, when the Spirit takes over, He takes over your tongue too. So think about your speech. How do others experience the Holy Spirit through your speech? Are they encouraged? Do we speak psalms and hymns to one another? Do we encourage one another? Number two, intoxication alters your judgment. You begin to make good decisions or bad decisions. Maybe you, as some of my family members, Lori's uh, sitting here with me and um, my in-laws are here and and she told me, reviewed the story of her Uncle Don who was killed by a drunk driver on a two-lane road, came across the road. It was a second offense, came across. Marsha, the aunt, was in the car. Don did not make it because of a drunk driver. What happened? He came across the lane. It was a little accident, right? It's an accident until someone dies. Then it becomes manslaughter. So what happens whenever the Spirit takes over our life, if we're not careful, we don't allow the Spirit to take over our life. What happens is the world will take over our life. And this is why he he warns us in the same chapter of Ephesians, verse 5 or verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on sons of disobedience. I don't want to be the son of disobedience. I want to be the son of obedience. I don't want to be intoxicated by the world. I want to be intoxicated by the Spirit. And that word that he mentions in verse verse 18, he says it leads to debauchery. I said I would come back and talk about that. It's only used three times in the New Testament. That's it. That's all. It actually means to live a reckless, careless life. A person who gets drunk is a person who lives a reckless, careless life. A person who is intoxicated by the Spirit will not live a reckless, careless life. They will live a wise life. But you think about some people who are intoxicated by self, intoxicated by the world, intoxicated by the material goods of this world, intoxicated by so many other things than the Spirit of God. What happens? Relationships become really difficult for them. They go from one bad relationship to another. Jobs become unsatisfying for them. They can never find a satisfaction in a job. They're constantly looking for the next place of employment or the next move up the ladder. Homes are never satisfying. They always got to find something new. Clothes are never good enough or clean enough or new enough. It's kind of like they're, they're constantly chasing the high. They're drunk on so many other things. Lori and I, uh, just a few years ago, and I'll not go into the details of it, but Lori and I were looking at making a decision that uh, impulsive buyer Mike could easily make. Uh, and we were in a situation of making this decision that was going to be a life-changing decision for us. That was going to be something that was going to change us in some ways. And it was in the middle of the night one night that I woke up ready to pull the trigger. Ready to do it. Ready to make the move. To make the jump. And I woke up. And it was like the Spirit of God just said to me, 
have you asked me? Because see, what had happened is I was on this kind of a, I was on this kind of process of, my decision grid was this. Uh, I have the resources and I have an opportunity. I have the resources and I have an opportunity. It's basically saying this, I want to do it and they say I can do it. So let's go do it. But in the middle of the night, I was operating on this linear line that, hey, opportunity, resources, they line up, you go do it. But then there was this other element, this other part of the equation, this triangular part that I had left off is had the Lord said yes. You see, if we operate like this and not like this, then we'll make decisions all day long, intoxicated on the world, but we will miss the other element. We will make decisions that we will later on regret. Well, how does the Holy Spirit affect this? John chapter 16, verse 8, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three things that the, that the Spirit of God will do when He comes. He helps us to see what's wrong. What is sin? Sometimes we don't know what sin is and we don't want to call sin what it is. We want to make it our own thing. We want to make it our little habit, our little hobby, our little proclivity. We want to make it something like that when really it's sin and we just got to call it what it is. But the Holy Spirit is inside of us saying, it's not right. You got to change. It's not good. He helps us to see what's right also. He affirms us. Yes, good choice. I'm, I've got your back. I'm in front of you. I got your back and I'm with you. How's that? Let's do this. Helps us to know what's right. John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. That's the value of the resurrection of Christ. Is He's going to send the Spirit after the resurrection. And now we're going to have the Spirit that will guide us into all of the truth. Number three. He helps us to see the big picture. It's also of the judgment. That sounds awful and horrible, I know, but it's reality is we're all accountable to God. And there will be a day of accountability, a day of reckoning. Let us all read this verse together out loud. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Read it with me. Live a life worthy of the Lord. Is it up there? Am I the only one reading? Wake up. Here we go. Live a life worthy of the Lord, please Him every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. Everything that I do is there the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is the Spirit of God intoxicated and affected my judgment? Or am I drunk on the world? Intoxication will affect your speech. It will affect your judgment. It will also affect your walk. The International Journal of Legal Medicine found a study that said, basically, when you're intoxicated, this is nothing new, you will sway in your walk, you will lose direction, you will lose sensitivity. I thought, well, that's nothing new. That's why they have you walk the straight line when you get out of the car. It's because toe-to-toe. Walk that line. Why? Because you start swaying, going from side to side. You lose your sense of direction. You lose your walk, your stability. And what, the, what this book calls us to and what the Holy Spirit calls us to is a different kind of walk. 
When, when we are intoxicated by the Spirit, we will walk differently. As he said in chapter 5, verse 1, we will be imitators of God. So basically, we're going to walk in his footsteps. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, you're going to walk as children of light. You're no more in darkness. You're going to walk as light. Children of light, not darkness. So you can see the change in our, in our steps when we become intoxicated with the Spirit. You will walk not as the unwise, but you will walk as the wise, it says in verse 15. You see the difference in our walk... Whenever we're intoxicated by the Spirit, when we are lit up with His Spirit, we now become the steps and, the, and, the, and we take the steps that we always wanted to take but we aren't, weren't able to take before because we were intoxicated with so many other things. I talked to a man uh, several years back. came to my office and basically had given up on God, given up on the church, and he'd heard that we're a church for that. So he sits in my office and he's, I won't go into all the conversation, but basically it was this. It was a 17-year deception that he had lived in his family that for 17 years he had hid away something in his life and he didn't bring it out, but when he was out of town, he lived it out. And it was a pretty dark thing and he was about to unveil it to the family. And... um, He said, if you don't give me some sense of direction right now, I'm going to go out and do it right now. Well, that's a lot of pressure in a a 30-minute conversation, right? So we started a two-year conversation. At least I stretched it out a little bit. We went for two years. And we walked through as a group, as a small group of men. We walked through it individually after that year together. We walked through it. And what we did, we just walked through the Scriptures talked about his spirit, talked about his soul, what's guiding him, what's steering him. And it really came down to the verse I'm about to share with you. It was at this point in the verses that follow it, and I don't have time to read the verses that follow it, I'll let you read that on your own. But it was at this point that he got off the bus. He said, I can't, I can't. And he made a choice. Am I going to walk by the spirit or am I going to walk by my flesh. And he chose the flesh. This is what the verse says. Chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Read it with me. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God wants to do in you, such incredibly powerful, life-changing work. You cannot do it on your own. Your flesh will not let you. The world will not teach you this. It will only be because of the resurrected Christ sending the Spirit of Christ into the heart of man that I can even have any hope that I'll not do stupid tomorrow. I have to walk every day. Every day that I live by the Spirit. I have to make sure that every day I'm not being drunk on this world, but I'm being drunk on His Spirit. Every day I have to do that. In fact, when you go back to verse 18, you read verse 18, it says, Be ye filled with the Spirit. That's actually, it's an interesting verb there. I don't have time to break it down, but it's basically a passive verb. It's not something that you do. You don't go out and figure out the concoction and you drink it. It's something that happens to you. 
It's a present, ongoing, imperative. It's a command, but it's a passive in what happens to you. It's like, how, how does that happen? How does, how does the Spirit of God take over so I can walk in the Spirit? How does that happen? Unless I have quartered off Him, unless I have set Him free. Because in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you'll say again and again and again that God is with us. God is with us. But when you come to the New Testament, there's this paradigm shift. And it is God is in us. Because, again, of the resurrected Christ. In Arkansas... I'll close with this. In Arkansas, there is a well of water that produces some of the most pure drinking water in the earth. And at this place, they spend hundreds and thousands of dollars pumping this pure water from the earth so that you and I can drink it. But there's a place in Texas, in Canton, Texas, where there's an artesian well that literally bubbles up from the ground that people from, from all over will come around to this artesian waters and they will stick their, 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 their buckets underneath it. They'll stick their, their water containers underneath it and they'll take freely from a well that is pumping from the ground up and it doesn't take any effort of man, any money of man, that there's enough water pressure under the earth that literally the water's going to come up and it's going to come out. And here's what I think a lot of people have done with the Spirit of God. The Arkansas model is I'm going to pump him out. I've got to get more. I've got to get, get, work harder. I've got to do more. I've got to work on this love thing. I've got to work on this patience thing. You just get tired and you give up. You move on. In reality, when I am saturated, inundated, intoxicated by the Spirit of God, He flows up. I can't keep a cap on Him. The love will come up. The peace will come up. The patience will come up. You get where I'm going with this? The fruits of the Spirit will come up. And you will not be able to stop it from coming up. One last verse. You are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice I said it. Because of the resurrection, the Spirit of God is able to dwell in us. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So I want to ask you today, do you know? Have you experienced the ever-life-changing power of the resurrection of Christ? Because if you have, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let Him free. Let Him flow free. Let Him bubble up. Let Him spill out. Let other people experience the manifestation of the Spirit of God in you. There's nothing you can do to get him in there. He's going to go there when you open up your heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Will you do that right now? Bow your heads with me. Just say to Jesus, right where you're at, in your own seat, just say, Jesus, I want to give my life to you. I will give myself to you, Lord. I want to follow you, Lord. I I want your spirit inside of me. Lord, do your work in me. 
There's going to be a few of us across the front of this section. If you want to come and pray with anyone, you want to talk with some people about what we've talked about today, we're going to be here. Some of our pastors, some of our deacons, some of, some of our people. Father God, take this moment, this time together, and I pray that you would make clear the work that you're wanting to do in us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Y'all can stand.